chapter 23 of Matthew, page 828 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And just as a reminder, if you have come today and you do not own your own Bible, please take the Bible that's in the pew so that you can read and study that and keep up with us. And you can grow in God's word and your understanding of the gospel. Page 828 in that book. I don't know what page it is on yours. If you brought your own, it's one click away in your digital Bible. Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. 
so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs, the prophets, and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, it is difficult to hear these things from our Savior. And Lord, I know like I did earlier this week, my first tendency is to say, well, he's talking about them, not me. I pray that you would protect us from that way of thinking. Lord, let these warnings that you have clearly given us come to our souls as warnings. Humble us. Help us to hear you clearly this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's been a, a number of weeks since we were in Matthew's gospel. So I want to remind you of where we are here as we're in Matthew 23. I want to remind you of the context. This section of the gospel according to Matthew began back in chapter 21 when Jesus, as the king, as the anointed king, came into Jerusalem on that cult, the donkey's cult. Do you remember that? And that was a sign. He was coming down from the Mount of Olives, riding on a donkey's colt. That was a sign that he was coming into the city, the city of David, as David's king, as David's promised king. Well, he comes into the city, you'll remember, and, and he receives praise from some. He receives praise from the Galileans, mostly, as the promised Messiah. And then we saw that he, as soon as he came in, he entered into the, the temple area and he began to reveal his role, not just as king, but also as 
prophet. Remember, Messiah was to be prophet, priest, and king. And so Jesus was certainly a prophet. And we saw that when he came into the temple and he started flipping over the tables and correcting everyone who was trying to to make a gain for themselves through the use of the, the temple system. And he drove them all out. And then at the end of that scene, he turned his back on the temple and he walked away. And then the next day, he's coming back into Jerusalem from from Bethany, the next town over. He's coming into Jerusalem. You can almost see the temple up on on the mountain ahead of them. And he's hungry and he sees this fig tree on the side of the road. And it had leaves on it, which was, by all indications, a sign that it might have the fruit on it, might have figs on it. And he goes up to the tree and lo and behold, there's no fruit and so he curses the tree, and it, and it withers and dies. And that was a foreshadowing to the rest of what we were going to see take place. That was a foreshadowing to, to all that we would see in chapters 22 and 23 and 24 and 25. That, that fruitless fig tree was a live-action parable. It was a symbol of the fruitlessness of what Judaism had become in this, the age of the second temple, led along by the teachings of the Pharisees. Well, after that living parable, Jesus goes on into the city. He goes into the temple grounds. And as soon as he arrives, what happens? Well, they start to challenge him. All of the religious leaders sort of gather around Jesus, and they start challenging him with these various challenges. The Pharisees were there, the scribes were there, the chief priests were there, the Sadducees are there. And they're all taking shots at Jesus, challenging his authority. And that's what we see happening in the, in the second half of chapter 21, all the way through chapter 22. And throughout that interchange between Jesus and these religious leaders, he answers their questions perfectly. And he always turns it back on them and shows them their guilt. He shows that they have rejected the prophets. He shows that their hearts are far from God and that they don't really believe the scriptures, nor do they even understand the scriptures. He shows that they they aren't repentant. That they're not seeking after the coming Messiah. That they're leading people astray. And worst of all, they have rejected him as Messiah. They've rejected the Son of God who was sent to them. And then at the end of chapter 22, Jesus had the last word. He shut them up. And he did that by revealing that they could not answer one of the most basic questions about one of the most fundamental prophecies about who the Messiah would be. They had no answer. And Matthew tells us at the very end, if you look back there at the end of Matthew chapter 22, this is sort of the starting point for where we are today. Matthew 22, verse 46. And I would encourage you to leave your Bibles open. Matthew says, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. That's a signal to us as the reader The debate is over. It's over. So when we get here to chapter 23, our text this morning, Jesus has finished directly talking to these religious leaders. 
Everything else he says is directed at his followers and the crowds. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. And Matthew says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, that's who he's talking to now, all of what we see happening in chapter 23 is, is the verdict. It's the, the sentencing and the judgment phase of what has been a very public trial for everyone to see. That the religious leaders had assumed they had Jesus on trial. Jesus was going to have to prove to them that he was the Messiah. But what was actually taking place was they were on trial. They were before the righteous king who had come in righteousness. And in our text this morning, Jesus issues his judgment on these men. And the judgment is this, guilty. Guilty for rejecting the Messiah and leading others to do the same. And the sentencing is the destruction of the city that they live in, the destruction of the temple that is so precious to them. And as we saw in the reading, their ultimate judgment is eternity in hell. So I want you to try and picture this scene, because this is very dramatic. The scribes and Pharisees and the priests are all there. And remember who these guys are. Okay, Don't think that these are like the, the, the cowboys and the black hats that have come into town. That These aren't the people that people think of as the bad guys. These are the best teachers. The, the most learned Jews. They've studied the scriptures their entire lives. Everyone looks up to these men. These are the guys who circumcised your firstborn son. The, these are the guys who officiated your wedding and buried your parents. And they, they offered the first prayers at the feasts. Everyone looks up to these men. And Jesus is talking to the crowds and the disciples about these religious leaders while they're standing right there. And what Jesus says isn't nice. He calls them fools. He calls them snakes. He says their fathers are vipers and murderers. He calls them children of hell. And hypocrites, blind guides. He's not gentle to them, is he? He's not nice to these men. And he's not intending to be nice. What Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 23 is meant to be truthful. It's meant to be authoritative. And he's saying these things for the benefit of those who are listening. He's shepherding his disciples by protecting them from the dangers of the Pharisees. And he's also evangelizing the crowds. There are many people in the crowds who haven't yet made up their mind about who this man is. And so Jesus is forcing them to make a decision. He's forcing them to, to choose between himself and these religious leaders that they've grown up with. And he does that by giving, them, giving these a great number, not just seven, there are like at least 13 or 14 extremely compelling reasons not to follow these men who are their leaders. 
we often mistake Jesus for the nice guy, peacemaker, weepy-looking guy who just helped everybody get along. We, we, we often think of Jesus as, let's just ignore the issues we disagree about and let's just be nice kind of guy. That's not Jesus. Jesus never once claimed to be that man. He brings us peace, but he brings us peace with the only one that we truly need peace with, God himself. But when it comes to those who would reject his identity as the Messiah and the Son of God and then teach others to do the same and so condemn others to hell, Jesus does not bring peace with those people. He's courageously and righteously condemnatory towards these men. If you've ever wondered why they killed Jesus, it's not because he was so nice. Chapter 23 pretty well sums up why they killed Jesus. We can divide this chapter into three sections. Uh, Not all of equal length, but into three distinct scenes. The first We have Jesus warning his followers about the the Pharisees. In the second section, Jesus pronounces these woes against the Pharisees. And then in the third section, Jesus is lamenting for the city. let's, Let's look at these in order. We have the first section of our passage. It's this warning, and it begins here. In verse 3, and I don't have the verses on the screen for you. Since it's such a long chapter, uh, there would be too many. And so the best way to do this is to open up your Bible. If Again, the page is 828. You can keep that open, and we'll just be moving right along section by section. Not necessarily verse by verse, but theme by theme as we get our way through this. So we see that the warning beginning in verse 3 when Jesus says to the crowds, Do not do what they do. He's talking about the Pharisees. Don't do what they do. Listen to what they say because they're teaching from Moses' seat. That means they're, they're proclaiming God's word. So listen to God's word when they're speaking from the scriptures. But don't do what they do. He's warning the people to avoid their bad example. And why is he doing that? Well, he tells us. He says they're, they're hypocrites. What they teach Sounds like God's word. It sounds like Judaism. But their hearts haven't been changed by God. They're not trusting in God's promise. They aren't, these, these, these teachers are not motivated out of love for the Lord. They're not motivated out of love for the people that they're serving. They don't really have a desire to obey the Lord. All that they do, they do to be seen. Do you see that? All they do, they do to be seen. It's a show. That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. Again and again and again in this passage. That's what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is an actor. It's someone who is playing a part. And Jesus gives three very specific examples of how they play the part of the holy man. He says they they, they wear these exaggerated, holy-looking outfits. They sit in the places of the holy men. So they're sitting at the front of the synagogue so everybody can see them. When there's a feast, they're sitting at the the seat of honor. 
And, then, and they're also obsessed. They want to, to be sure that people call them by their proper title. They look like holy men. They want people to call them holy men, and they sit where holy men sit. And Jesus simply says to his disciples and everyone listening, guys, don't do this. Don't be that guy. Don't do this. For Christ followers, the way to avoid this type of showmanship, this type of hypocrisy, the acting, is to just practice humility instead. Be humble. And that's not a suggestion from Jesus. This is a command from Jesus. He says that because there's no, there's no status labels in the body of Christ. We are all simply brothers and sisters in Christ. When the church gathers together to worship Christ, we gather to do, to do just that. We gather to worship Christ. Not, not me, not the person preaching. Not the person leading in song. Not the greeters, not the Sunday school teachers. It's not why we're here. We're not here to honor the, the preacher. We're here to honor Christ and to worship him. So then the leaders of the church, Jesus is saying, when he turns it from they do this, the hypocrites do this, you must be like this, he's saying the leaders of the church, his people, his followers, absolutely must humble themselves, lower themselves in order to point others to Christ. One of the primary ways that, we, that Jesus recognizes we're prone to error in this is this titles issue. In Jewish culture, when Jesus is addressing their culture, he's saying that the titles of honor for them were rabbi and father and instructor. Today, titles of honor might be reverend or preacher or doctor or professor or pastor. Jesus says, don't. In the church, we are simply brothers and sisters in Christ. This doesn't mean, I don't want you to think that this means that titles means that titles are wrong. All throughout the New Testament, we see people given titles. They're there. We have apostles and elders and teachers and deacons. But the titles in the church refer to offices. And the offices help order the church. And that order, it's like rails on a railway. All right, the, the way that God has ordered the church is meant to direct people towards Christ. So in the church, the focus is to be on Christ, not on the individuals. Certainly not the pastor. Pastors in Christ's church are not like doctors and lawyers and professors. We're not professionals. Our, our degrees don't demand a title, nor should we want that. Our training as pastors is simply this, in pointing people to Christ. So when Dustin or Josh or, or I introduce ourselves as one of the pastors here, do not think, well, I, then I, must, I have to call this guy pastor. Because he, he's, he's earned that. He's earned that title. We have not earned anything. Nothing but death and hell. What, what we've been given by Christ is all grace. 
So instead of thinking of a pastor as a professional title, this is what Jesus is getting at here. Think of it as a descriptor of the office. Think the pastors are the guys entrusted to point people to Christ. That's it. That's it. There's nothing else here. A pastor is a shepherd, shepherding the flock to good pasture and fresh water. And so the very best way that you can and I can avoid this status game in the church is just call me by my first name, please. And call Dustin by his first name and call Josh by his first name. And what that does is it reminds you this guy is no better than me. He has not earned anything different than I have. He's just been trained by godly men ahead of him. And so then entrusted by this church to help train us. That's it. Any man who insists that you call him by a title is a man you want to stay away from in the church. That's what Jesus is getting at here in verses 8 through 11. In the world, status as compared to others is really important. That's, that's how the world operates. It's what makes a person who they are. It's what distinguishes a person from another one. But in the church, in Christ, only Christ is important. Only Christ is elevated. In the king, in the kingdom rather, only the king is important. The rest of us, no matter who we are, we're all just servants of the king. Even the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, I just work here. <laughs> right? I'm just a servant. Apollos planted, I just watered. Or is it the other way around? I planted, Apollos watered. The whole point is that he was just doing what God told him to do. He's just serving the Lord. He's a servant of the Lord. This is an apostle. Capital A, apostle, commissioned by Christ to take the gospel to the nations. And he says, I'm just a servant. We're all just servants of the king. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, pointing one another to Christ. If you ever feel yourself wanting to be noticed, wanting to be noticed by other people in the church, you know what that is? That's the little Pharisee inside of you talking. Tell him to shut up. <laughs> as soon as we begin to think of ourselves as something in ourselves, whether that's because of our titles or how long we've been Christians or how often we read our Bibles or how often we pray, if we begin to think that who we are is somehow bound up in those things, we need to re-examine who we are. We need to re-examine our identity. Because being a Christian is not about making much of yourself. It's not about drawing attention to yourself. It's about making much of King Jesus. That's why Jesus sums it up in verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And that's not the humbling you want. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and that is the exalting that you want. The remedy to hypocrisy is humility. To, to avoid the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, humble yourself, Christian. Pray for humility. Remind yourself of what happened when you were converted. How the life that you now live is in Christ. How you were buried with Christ. Dustin no longer lives. Christ lives in me. Raised up with him. 
The second part of the passage, moving on from the warning, begins in verse 13. This is the first of these woes. And we see seven woes that Jesus pronounces against the scribes and Pharisees. This is part two of our lesson this morning. He says, woe to them. Seven times over, he says that. Why? Well, again, because they're hypocrites. Did you notice that when we read that passage? I hope you heard that. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, comma, hypocrites. Over and over and over again. Verse 13, verse 15, verse 23, verse 27, verse 29. When you see something repeated that many times, it's probably really important. And it is. Hypocrisy is the core problem. It's the core issue that these men have. These are the men who have put themselves forward in front of the entire nation as the ones who will lead God's people. But what are they doing? They're leading people away from God. They've taken this very public role as leaders, crowned themselves with the, with the title of teacher, teacher of the law, rabbi, instructor, father. And they're using that influence to lead people towards themselves rather than to the Lord. And Jesus reveals to everyone listening there just how truly wicked that is. And he does that by pronouncing these seven woes. Now, why seven woes? What's going on with this? Well, back in Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet Isaiah, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to summarize it for you. Prophet Isaiah is pronouncing six woes over Judah, the southern, the southern nation. And he's, and he's pronouncing these woes, particularly against Jerusalem and her leaders. Very similar to what we see right here. And those six woes were Isaiah telling the people the reasons that God was going to judge the city and destroy the temple and then send the people into exile. And if you go back and read those six woes, they mostly have to do with very explicit sin. Things that we would all just look at and say, yeah, that's sin. So, so they're, they're amassing wealth and they're getting fat and they're getting drunk with all of their ill-gotten gain. They got rich off the backs of their fellow countrymen by taking advantage of them. They're living on the high horse. They're ignoring the people who are starving to death. They're unjust. Isaiah says they call good evil and evil good. They take bribes. They've just no conscience whatsoever. It's a very clear picture of wickedness. And as a result of Judah's sin, they're exiled. God removes his protection from them. Babylon comes in, destroys Jerusalem and the temple, and the people are taken away from the land. And that's why Isaiah says woes to them over and over again, six times over. Isaiah pronounces these woes, and not long after that, judgment comes. It's what a woe is indicating. Judgment is coming. Now, what's different about what's happening here? In our text is we have religious leaders, again, who by all outward appearances are holy, they're righteous, and yet they're not following the Lord. And so it's even more dangerous than the clear examples of sin that we see in Isaiah. They lead people to think that they are good men 
leading people to God. But they're not. They're leading people away from God. They're leading people astray. And here's Jesus, and he's recognizing what has been going on, and what does he do? He pronounces not six woes, but seven woes. It's not accidental. It's not just one more. Seven is the Bible number for completeness. This is, this is from Jesus, a final, absolute, complete condemnation on the leaders and their city. So what we saw in Isaiah was a partial judgment following Isaiah's six woes. And here we have a seven-woe-filled, complete judgment that will come on Jerusalem. And we'll see that come in 70 A.D. The city will be destroyed. This is their verdict. There are three reasons why I want to show you that, that Matthew includes these woes for us. All right? So I mean, you read this and you think, well, why do we, really, do we really need to see this? <laughs> It's rough, isn't it? But God, in his wisdom, has included this chapter in Matthew. And, and I think there's three things that, that we can draw from this. The first is really obvious. In 70 AD, God is going to finally destroy the temple. It's actually happened. So the Roman, the Roman army comes in, obliterates Jerusalem. Thousands of people who heard these woes die horrendous deaths. Jesus is prophesying that coming judgment. The people have rejected the Lord. They've rejected the Lord. They've rejected the Messiah. And so they have rejected God. And they're leading others to do the same. So judgment is coming. A second reason why I believe that God includes this for us is that these woes are warnings for the religious leaders who are there. Some of these men hearing these woes will repent and turn to Christ. Seven weeks after the pronouncement of these woes on Pentecost, God is going to pour out his spirit. And some of these people will hear the gospel. They'll be convicted of their sin and they will come to faith. And these woes, I believe, are influential in their call for repentance. They are like a final call for repentance. Finally, I think these woes, the third reason why I think they are here, is that they are for our instruction. All right, so this isn't just a history document, isn't it? Is it? We as, as Christians today, reading God's word, hearing God's word, we are to see just how dangerous and damnable hypocrisy is. We're to see that because of the hypocrisy of his own people, God destroyed the temple that his glory once dwelt in. After hundreds of years, thousands of years really, of piled up guilt, the measure of God's wrath was complete. It was filled up, as Jesus says. And God had his own covenant people killed for their rebellion against him. We're going to look at that in, in chapters 24 and 25 over several weeks. 
But while we're here in chapter 23, I want us to take these woes as warnings for those of us who claim to be Christians. Hypocrisy or faking the Christian life, pretending to be a Christian, that's not indicative of a weak faith. That's not like carnal Christianity, right? whatever that means. Hypocrisy is a false faith. That's what Jesus is countering here. To truly be in Christ is to be transformed from the inside out. All right, starting on the inside, clean the cup from the inside out, is what he says later on. To truly be transformed is to, to have that type of faith where your heart is first changed and then your life begins to change. It's not the other way around. If we seek to simply try to change our lives first, well, then we become hypocrites. We'll be inconsistent. We'll, we'll find ourselves making excuses when we fall short. We'll find ourselves rationalizing our sin. We will sin. I sin. Frequently. And my sin would make it appear because it's true, my, my sin is contradictory to my faith. So is yours. You claim Christ and then you sin, it contradicts your faith. But what do we do if we're in Christ? We repent. We don't make excuses. We repent of our sin. We confess our sin. That's, that's what Christians do. That's what those who are born again into Christ do. Hypocrites just cover it up, make excuses for it, or say that's not, you're seeing that wrong. Jesus is saying, don't do that. This, so this morning, use these seven woes as a sort of diagnostic of yourself. Of your, consider this a spiritual health checkup, okay? Examine your heart. If you find, upon reading these seven woes, that the majority of these descriptions of, of hypocrisy, of religious hypocrisy, if the majority of these descriptions characterize you, then you need to take Jesus' words as a serious warning and repent. And pray that God would give you a sincere faith, a faith that comes from the heart and goes outward. So hear this as a warning. This is not a trifling matter. This is serious stuff. So, so what exactly, then, are we to avoid? What exactly are these men being condemned for? Well, we see that listed in the seven woes. The first woe we find in verse 13. So look there. Jesus says the Pharisees are shutting the kingdom of God in people's faces. So just to summarize that, all of the Old Testament, this is how we read the Bibles. All right? This is how we read our Bibles. All of the Old Testament is anticipating the arrival of Messiah. In anticipating the arrival of God's kingdom. We talked about that last week. And here's Messiah. He's arrived. He's Jesus, and the long-awaited kingdom is arriving with him, and the Pharisees are saying, nope, not him. Jesus is not the Messiah. No, this is not the promised kingdom. And so those who had been waiting for Jesus, waiting for Messiah, they look to their teachers, is this him? And the teachers say no, and so what do they do? Well, they listen to their teachers. And so they're turned away from Christ, by the people that they trust. When you or I, when we by our actions, by our teaching, present 
a false view of Christ. When we deny the true Christ and we present a false view of Christ, when you deny Christ by your actions or by your teaching, you are shutting the kingdom of God to the people who are looking up to you. Woe to anyone who does this. The second woe we see in verse 15 Scribes and Pharisees are actively seeking out converts to their ways. They desire that others would learn from them. So it's not just that these these men have close friends and family members who are looking up to them and being turned away from Christ. Jesus says, you cross land and sea to find converts for your ways. And what do they do? They turn them away from Christ as well. Now, is it bad, is it evil somehow to want to make converts? I don't think it is. Jesus commands his disciples to make disciples, doesn't he? Matthew 28. Paul, when you read his letters to Timothy, he, he's, being, he's led by the Spirit, and he commands Timothy to entrust these teachings to other faithful men who will teach other men also. Paul himself went across land and sea. He literally did that. Went across land and sea to make converts to Christ, didn't he? The only way that the gospel is spread is through teaching. But that principle relies on a reality that Jesus is recognizing here. Disciple makers make disciples of themselves. A student will be like his teacher. That is just a reality of the human condition. We can't avoid it. A student will be like his teacher. Pharisees make Pharisees. And because they are replicating their own God-denying theology, Jesus condemns them. He woes to them. So friends, listen, whether you realize it or not, whether you intend it or not, there is someone who is looking up to you. That's just how things are. If you're claiming to be a Christian, there's someone who is looking to you as a Christian. Oh, that person says they're a Christ follower. This is what a Christ follower does. If you're a parent, this is certainly the case. You are making a disciple of yourself. If if you're a disciple of Christ, if you're following Christ, that's a good thing. Because if someone follows you and you're following Christ, then they're following Christ. But if you're not following Christ, And you claim to be. What's happening? You are leading someone astray. The third woe begins in verse 16. And this this woe is due to the, the bizarre habit. I don't know what to call it. The, The Pharisees do this strange thing with God's word. They make up the rules as they go along. Okay? So this this is the behavior that Jesus has been really pointing out as the, the, one of the core errors of Pharisaism. If we go back all the way to the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus calling out this error. The Pharisees are always looking for loopholes in the law. They were always lawyering their way around God's law. And these are examples, what Jesus gives here are examples of the way that they thought. So when they say, I swear by the temple, 
but they don't say I swear by the gold in the temple. That's sort of like this. That's, that's sort of like making a, a promise with your fingers crossed behind your back or your toes crossed in your shoes or something like that. Yeah, I did swear by the temple. That's right. But I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. I swore by the altar, but I didn't swear by the sacrifice that was on the altar. So I don't have to keep my word. It was a way of, it was a way of thinking themselves as theologically superior to all the little people. All the little people who don't really understand the secrets of the Bible. So they could lie and they could get away with it and still be considered smart and intelligent holy men. They were taking God's word and twisting it to their own advantage. And what's worse is that they were teaching others to study the Bible in this way. They were teaching others that the Bible is just a list of, of, of rules. And the holy men understand the rules, and no one else really understands the rules. But that's not what the Bible is. It's never what it was meant to be. The Bible all along was a book meant to point people to their need for Christ. It was not just a list of rules. It's pointing people to Christ, and so Jesus calls them blind guides because they're teaching people to read the Bible wrong. They aren't seeing. They aren't seeing the righteousness of God in God's law. They're only seeing the ways that they can manipulate the words. They aren't seeing that God's word was meant to point them to Christ. They're only seeing the word as sort of a, a lump of clay that they can form into whatever they want to, kind of a wax nose theology. Listen, if you're using God's word to justify sin, that's just wicked. If you're pitting one section of scripture against another and then teaching others to justify sin and using God's word to do it, judgment is coming. That is the height of hypocrisy. It's the center of of all of these woes. Fourth woe is very similar. Starts in verse 23. Pharisees are great at tithing. Absolute wonders at tithing. They give a tenth of everything they have. Even down to their spice cabinets. But what's their problem? They neglect what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Again, they're reading Scripture wrong. They're seeing Scripture as a list of rules, not as a way to imitate the image of God, the character of God. This is like, just as a rough comparison, this is like a parent whose kids' clothes are always clean, they're always fashionable, they bathe their kids every day. They fix their hair. It's always super cute. They make sure their teeth are brushed and flossed. But then they don't feed them. They're neglecting the weightier matters. The really important things that as parents they are most responsible for. Things like making sure the kids don't die. Right? 
So the mom's like, well, but, but, but my, my Insta has 200,000 followers because my kids are so cute. And Jesus is like, your kids are dying. You're neglecting the weightier matters of parenting. That's how important justice and mercy and faithfulness are to God. That the leaders of God's people were to set the example for everyone else. They were to be the best at justice, the best at mercy and faithfulness. These were the virtues that were to distinguish God's people from the world around them. All religions, every religion, even secularism, requires giving in order to, to keep the temple running. Judaism's not different in that. Christianity's not different in that. But only one true religion has its people bearing the image and character of God. The responsibility of these leaders was to practice these God-honoring, image-bearing essentials of the faith. God is just, so we are to be just and show justice. God is merciful, so we are to show mercy. God is eternally faithful, so we are to be faithful. But the Pharisees are hypocrites, and they're not interested in magnifying God, are they? What did Jesus say? They're interested in drawing attention to themselves. So they want the attention. Remember, they're putting on a show. So everything they do ignores the more difficult doctrines, the more difficult essentials of the faith. The stuff that nobody gets credit for. You don't get credit for being merciful. No one says, oh, wow, you're so merciful to that person. People who are merciful do that without being seen. You don't get credit for it. Instead, they obsess over the less important but easy to obey things, things that don't require a changed heart. Things that draw attention to themselves, things like tithing, and tithing for them was a very public act. Jesus says, yes, give, that's good, that's a must. It's good to tithe. There's no excuse not to offer your money up to be used by God. But more importantly, make sure you love justice and do mercy and walk humbly with God. That's what it means to be a righteous Jew leading others to Christ. The fifth woe we see in verse 25. And the image that Jesus paints for us is a, a bowl or a cup, plate, clean on the outside, but filthy, absolutely gross on the inside. And, and if you, this happens at our house because we have a weird dishwasher, okay? So how many times have you grabbed a coffee mug out of the top shelf in the cabinet? It looks clean on the outside. You're ready to, to you've got the care if you're ready to pour yourself a little happiness. And right before the care tips, you see all of that leftover dishwasher muck. It's in the bottom of the cup. You kind of want to throw it, right? <laughs> so take that feeling that you have right there and multiply it times infinity. And that's the beginning, just the beginning of the wrath that Jesus has towards hypocrisy. On the outside, since they're all about appearances, the Pharisees appear clean. They go through all the cleansing rituals better than anybody. They've got the prettiest, prettiest baptistries right in front of their house. 
They're always clean. They appear to others to be representing God. Their clothing, their phylacteries, the fringes, they look like good Jews. But they're not. Jesus says everything they do is motivated by greed and self-indulgence. Out of all the woes and all the warnings in this chapter, if there was one that I thought would justify its very own Sunday, this is the one. This is the one. All of us need to pay special attention, careful attention to this woe. And I say that because greed and self-indulgence, what Jesus is saying is, is at the heart of who the Pharisees are. These are not considered vices in our culture. These are our culture's highest virtues. In fact, if being true to yourself is the highest good in our culture, then greed and self-indulgence are the means through which we get there. This stuff is the air that we breathe. And Jesus is saying here, Christian, hold your breath. Greed and self-indulgence are not virtues. These are wicked, sinful expressions of the flesh. The Pharisees had given in to this way of thinking because they were living for themselves, for their own glory. And they were using their positions as religious leaders to further indulge themselves. Listen. Greed and self-indulgence are extremely deceptive, extremely dangerous. Think about it. We have to eat to live, right? We stop eating, we die. So when we're hungry, we eat. Now, where is the line? Can you draw it? I can't. Where is the line between eating when we're hungry and being self-indulgent? I don't know. That's why it's dangerous. Where is the line between working to provide for your family and being glorifying Christ with how good of a worker you are? Where is the line between that and working to accumulate wealth and satisfy your greed? They look exactly the same. The, the line is invisible and no one can see whether or not you're being greedy or a good dad or self-indulgent or just eating healthy food. No one can see but God himself. We can hide greed and self-indulgence from everyone, including ourselves. We can hide these fleshly motivators better than any other sin because you can live a seemingly normal-appearing Christian life and yet do it motivated by greed and self-indulgence. You can tithe, motivated by greed, thinking that you will get back 100-fold. So how do we avoid this way of thinking? How do we do this? How do we avoid greed and self-indulgence in the Christian life? Well, I do want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And there's a fly up here if you see me waving my hand. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, just a few chapters over. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 
and look at chapter 9. Paul is, is expressing his own difficulties with this temptation. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. This is Paul, an apostle, the same man who called himself a servant earlier in order to avoid the self-attention that comes with being an apostle. Verse 24, 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Remember, it's self-control as opposed to self-indulgence. Okay? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, as Christians, we run the race exercising self-control to receive an imperishable wreath, eternal life. So look at verse 26. Paul says, So I do not run aimlessly, It's not just doing it to show. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I discipline my body. I keep my body under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. His desire is to avoid the deceptions of self-indulgence and greed. And so what does he do? He disciplines his body. What that probably means is that he secretly fasts. He fasts in order to maintain disciplines over his desires. So if you want to be self-controlled, rather than self-indulgent, you have to practice spiritual disciplines. So if you lose self-control, if you indulge yourself in every emotion that you have, Pray. Pray that the Lord would give you control over your emotions. If you're an angry, rageful person, pray for self-control, that you would not indulge those things. If you, if you find yourself greedy, 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 give secretly. Why? So that so that you would, you would realize that everything you have belongs to the Lord. Exercise self-control. Discipline yourself. To go, follow the, the spiritual disciplines. But you can't do this at all if you're not truly in Christ. So if you're not truly in Christ, just don't even bother. Right? Because it'll just turn you into a hypocrite. It'll turn you into a Pharisee. You've got to be born into, again into Christ first. And if you're born again into Christ, then your reason for living The motivator that you have is his glory. We live, as Christians, we live to glorify him rather than ourselves, and that frees us. We're not trying to glorify ourselves. If we're not trying to make much of ourselves, that frees us to avoid greed. We can be generous instead. And we don't have to be self-indulgent if we're in Christ Because it's not about pleasing ourselves, it's about pleasing Christ. So we can use self-control in order to please Christ. We can be self-denying in order to please Him. We can be self-sacrificing like He is. We can, because Christ has given us His Spirit, we can live according to the Spirit and deny ourselves in order to make much of Him. 
So the last word on this is be wary of greed and self-indulgence. The sixth woe is similar. Look at verse 27. He says, woe to the scribes and Pharisees, these hypocrites, because they're like whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs, beautiful marble mausoleums carved out of the finest stone. But what's inside? Dead people. Death, decay, Christ-denying hypocrisy, God-hating lawlessness. They have the appearance of life in God, like a statue, the, the appearance of beauty. They look like they're obeying God's word, but they're not. They're what he calls lawless. Don't miss that. That is probably the greatest insult that we have in this chapter. These religious people are people who want to be known by everyone around them as the law keepers, the exemplar law keepers. And Jesus says, you ain't law keepers, you are lawless. They're hypocrites. Their law keeping is just a performance. The law, I'm going to say it again, the law was meant to point people to Christ. And these men are denying Christ. So they're denying the law. The final woe, the seventh one, begins in verse 29. And isn't it, it's not so much an accusation as it is a conclusion of the previous six woes. The Pharisees want to be thought of as people who are the, the, the perfect Jews, who listen to the prophets, and so they want to be seen as the guys who are honoring the prophets. And they say, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. No. If I went back then, I wouldn't have killed them. That's kind of like the, you know, if I, today, it's us looking back in the 1700s and saying, well, I wouldn't have owned slaves, or uh, if we're looking, you know, 200 years in the future, well, I would not have supported abortion or whatever it is. It, you can't say these things in the present. We say these things in the future. These re- religious men want to be seen as, as the, the, the ones who, who are honoring the prophets. And Jesus says, in reality, you are the prophet killers. You are the children of the prophet killers, the children of the serpent. And because of this, to prove this, Jesus says, I'll tell you what, I will send you more prophets, more wise men, more scribes in my name, and they will come to you as messengers. And I guarantee you, you're going to kill them. You're going to chase them from town to town and persecute them. This is exactly what we see happening, isn't it? You read the book of Acts, and what do you see? You see God send messengers on Christ's behalf. Apostles, prophets, wise men who preached the gospel, and they literally chased them from town to town and killed them. They stoned them. And when that happens, when, when the book of Acts unfolds, their true colors will be revealed. They'll prove themselves to be the wicked men that they really are. And all that wrath that God has been storing up patiently, patiently, patiently. Waiting for these men to repent, calling for them to repent, all of the guilt of God's righteous judgment towards their guilt and the guilt of their fathers and their fathers' fathers who killed the prophets, 
all of that's going to come crashing down on them at once. And because Jesus knows this is coming, we get our last section. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is the lament. John calls it weeping when you read John's gospel. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is a sad conclusion to the woes, isn't it? The city will not turn to the Lord. Jesus says, how often would I have gathered you children as a hen gathers her brood? But you're not willing. Jesus longed for them to repent. He wanted them to repent. He wanted them to turn to him. Think of, think of Paul in Romans, how he says, I would give anything if my countrymen would simply turn to Christ. But they're not willing. They don't recognize Jesus for who he is. They can't. They don't have eyes to see him. They're blind to their deliverer. They're blind to their redeemer. They're blind to their own king. And we'll see that really clearly when they say we have no king but Caesar in just a few weeks. They're more interested in this temple of theirs. Oh, man, they love the temple. They love their temple. They're more interested in the temple than in the God that the temple was meant to belong to. So Jesus says in verse 38, your house is supposed to be God's house. Your house is left to you desolate, empty, like a desert. Jesus says, that house that you made to be God's house, it's yours now and it's empty. God isn't in it anymore. He's saying the temple is empty. God isn't there. Jesus, God himself, the presence of God with his people is standing in front of the temple. This is the most vivid experience of the presence of God than any Jew in history. He's there with them. And he's crying out to them to come to him, to gather to him. But they can't see him. They're too obstinate. They're too blind. They're too interested in themselves and in their traditions. And so they can't see God in front of them when he's there. So Jesus says in verse 39, I tell you, you won't see me. You won't see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now at first glance, this seems like Jesus is predicting his return. Like there's going to be a great ingathering of all the Jews and then Jesus is going to come back. You could look for that somewhere else in scripture, but not right here. What's happening here? Is, is not a prediction of Jesus' return. He's not saying, I'm coming back when you say, blessed is he who comes in the Lord, like, like a, a special incantation. That if they'll only say those things, then Jesus will return. That's not what's happening. This is not a prediction of the future. This is a condition. A condition. Knowing again and experiencing the presence of God is Conditional. It won't happen for them until they see that Christ is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. To see Christ is to see him as Messiah. 
And so when they can see, like the, the people who just a few uh, chapters ago were welcoming in Jesus, singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Palm Sunday, if they will have that faith, then they'll see him as Messiah. If they will understand, if they will only understand that Jesus is the Messiah, then they will see him as Lord, they will see him as God, and they'll know that God has fulfilled his promises. And with that, look at verse 20, or chapter 24, verse 1, because this is really the conclusion. With that, Jesus leaves the temple. The presence of God turns his back on the temple, and he will not return except to destroy it. God has come to dwell with his people, not, not in a place built with human hands, but in the person of Christ and his people have rejected him. That's what chapter 23 is about. The scribes and Pharisees are the teachers of the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament is pointing to the Messiah. The teachers are the ones who are supposed to recognize Messiah. But when he arrived, they denied him and turned others away from him as well. And so judgment is coming to them. I'm just going to conclude with this, okay? So for those of you who are claiming to be Christians, and and you want to avoid that type of hypocrisy, you want to avoid leading people astray, here's what you do. You see Christ for who he is in his word. You worship him as he has revealed himself in his word. Humble yourself. Commit to following him. And you'll avoid the error of hypocrisy. Let's pray and ask the Lord for his help in that.